Do you want to hear the definition of foolishness? Oh, you're not that bothered really, are you? The definition of foolishness is unfortunately done by our brother Joe Clark because when he booked me today to speak for Mothering Sunday, he gave me three passages to do. Not one, not two, but three. So if you've got a carvery booked or you've got a roast in the oven, just cancel them now, okay? It, it just ain't going to happen. So for the next three hours, as we spend a decent time on each portion, then we're going to just look at these together. And hopefully, to save us doing three Bible readings, you'll all have received your, uh, your reading here. There's the bands one. There you go. If you haven't got your readings, if you just put your hand up, one of the stewards will bring you some readings now in double time. So don't worry if you don't have those. So we're not going to read each one. We're just going to look at them. So as I'm speaking, you might be able to flick over in the different readings and also hopefully take them home with you and look and see, well, what do these mean to you? What are you taking from these particular readings? But I'm calling it sort of three for the price of one Sunday. And each of those, I believe, as you'll see on the screen now, is looking at servanthood in the parables, but especially it's what do you see? Because we see people who represent God in these parables and people who represent us. And they see different things that they want from servanthood, different things that they think are appropriate. And it reminds me of an old story of a very celebrated pianist. And he was doing a very exclusive gathering and playing all the hits that everyone knows and everyone wants to dance to. And this guy came to him, probably a little worse for wear, and said, oh, I would really like you to play That's What You Are. And the pianist thought, I don't know that. And he said, well, I don't really know that one. I'm, I'm not sure if I can do that. But after some songs and some dancing, the guy came back and said, I really want you to play. It's my favourite, fav favourite song. That's what you are. It's like, I don't know it. But he looked through his different books and the different arrangements he had and couldn't find that song, so carried on doing other ones. Finally, the guy came to him and said, I really, really, really want you to play That's What You Are. And he said, well, okay then, if you sing it to me, I'll have a go at playing it. And the guy said, <coughs> unforgettable, that's what you are. And they were looking at the same problem from a totally different perspective. But in each of these different stories, the master or the king is the one who applies to Jesus, to God. And the workers, or in our last one, the sheep and the goats, they're the people that apply to us and what we should take and what we should put into practice from these different parables. Now, the first one is all about a story about workers. And this one, I think, is all about looking at others. So where are you looking? In this story, they're looking at other people. And 
the problem that these workers have is that they've been working all day and there have been different tranches of workers coming through and they're all being told by the master they will be paid a fair price. But then the people who come last and don't do much work at all gets paid the same as somebody who's working all day. And firstly, when you think and think about the workers who have worked all day complaining, you'll probably think, well, that's a perfectly reasonable argument, especially in today's climate. It's as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago because if you're involved in management or in most areas of work, you probably heard the words equality, which especially is really important. We want people to get a fair wage for the work they do. That's incredibly important. So you might be thinking, whoa, well, this story is all about inequality. This parable is in response to Peter's question of all about, we've left everything to follow you. What will be there for us? He wanted to know what the reward was for people who'd given up everything to follow Jesus. And in those days, everybody in that time would know about vineyards and what a physical labour it was. And often they needed extra work like people to do. And in this time, the person went around 6am and get people to work for that day. He offered a wage of one denarius. We don't have a clue how much that is, do we? But one denarius was a Roman soldier's pay for the day. And people who've listened, who were listening to that story would go, oh, that's generous. A lot of people wouldn't have been able to get one denarius for their work for that day. And people who were in the first group were more than happy to work for a generous wage. However, as the day progressed and more people were hired, the master promised to pay them what was right. And when four groups of workers were hired, the first group saw that the last group were being paid a denarius, and they thought, ha, 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 we're in the money. If they're getting paid a denarius, what are we getting? However, they got what was agreed when they were hired a perfectly, perfectly fair wage, an overly generous wage probably for their day's work. But they're annoyed because people who'd done much less still got that generous amount. And the landlord owner was forced to defend his actions to the first group, but he'd done nothing that was against the contract. Now, when we look at this, we've got to realise that the people in the, the story who got a bit annoyed, their attitude is being compared to those of the Pharisees. Those people who are incensed at Jesus' teaching that others could inherit a heavenly kingdom they thought were reserved for them alone. They despised Jesus for offering the kingdom to the poor, the oppressed, and people who they saw as weak sinners. In verse 15, the landowner asks, is your eye evil because I am good? The evil eye was a Hebrew expression referring to jealousy and envy. And the Pharisees, they were often known for having that. 
That's what Jesus was exposing. And instead of seeing that other people were coming to Jesus and people who never really um, accepted the Jewish teachings or connected with it, instead of seeing these crowds and the people affected by Jesus, they were getting incredibly angry from it. Of course, just remember, Scripture, as you read through it, teaches that there are different rewards in heaven for different types of service. But this, what we're talking about in this story, is the ultimate reward of eternal life. And this will achieve, be achieved by all who accept Jesus as their personal saviour. So some of us, and I know looking at some of you, you've been Christians for many a year, probably before these Bible passages were written. <laughs> but do we rejoice when new people are coming to find out the truth of God and accepting God? Do we help them? Do we put our arms around them and say, here's how we can learn together and grow? Or do we go, well, because they haven't been a Christian as long as me, or Ooh, I know what they were like beforehand, we hence judge them. And then, like these people, instead of celebrating that they had this lovely denarius to go and spend on whatever they would spend in those days, these people in the story were getting bitter and complaining. And they were looking at these others and it was ruining the reward that they had. Now, I know probably none of you will have heard this because, as I've said before, I don't like to talk about it. But I recently ran a half marathon. And the guy who was training me had run a number of half marathons. And one of the things I was worried about was making a fool of myself and being the last person. So on the Tuesday, when everyone had cleared away the stuff, it was a Sunday we ran. I'm still running and people are going, oh, what, what's he doing? Oh, he's like dragging himself across the line. And I was really worried about how other people would see me and how I'd look compared to the other people in that race. His wise words were this. There's always someone faster than you, and there's always someone slower than you. But as long as you focus on your race, you should be fine. Now, in one of the times I was particularly grumpy with running, I did say to him, look, there's always somebody who is at the start and always some at the end, so you, your logic is slightly wrong. There's always two people who that doesn't apply to. But it's true that we need to focus on our race. We need to focus on making sure we are right with God. Now, don't take that as me saying, don't think about others, don't consider others, don't think how you can help others, because as we look through these parables, you'll see that is not what I'm saying. But when we are looking at others and getting bitter, when we're looking at others and their progression with Jesus and their relationship with Jesus, and it is affecting our walk negatively, then that is where we need to worry. And I'm sure there's times we can all think, well, actually, yes. We have looked at other people and that has then made us bitter and put us a step back. But also think about those people who inspire us. When we're looking at others, look at people who we can see that are following the example of Jesus. These workers who are there all day, they should have been the people who were setting the bar, setting the example. We can be those people. There are people we can look at and follow 
and see just how they connect with Jesus. But the really disappointing part in this passage is that they didn't recognise the master's generosity. He was being incredibly generous here. But by looking at other people, that clouded who they are and who they were in Jesus. Our next one, the parable of the talents. This story is all about people who are given certain amounts of money and were asked to look after that. Now, it says they were given each according to their ability. So in this particular version of the story, one had five talents, the other two, and the other one. And then the person who had the five, they did good stuff with them, they invested it, and then they got five back. Person with two did the same and got two back. The person who had the one talent, well, what they, did they do? They dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. Again, remember in the first one, we said, well, that's quite reasonable. That's a reasonable thing to do. They didn't want to lose the money. They didn't want to waste the money. And especially when we hear about bankers today who did all sorts of weird stuff, investing money and lost millions of pounds, Surely this is quite sensible. You're given one talent, look after that one talent, make sure nothing happens to that one talent, make sure Kevin and Rachel don't get it and spend it on waistcoats or things like that. Just look after it. We're absolutely... Isn't that reasonable? We're not wasting it or anything like that. This person, the way they were looking, they didn't see the point. They just didn't see that they had this talent that they could do great things with. And this is all looking at what, what do we do with precious things we were given from God. This, the idea of the talent is giving a value of a lot of money. It wasn't just like, here's a quid, look after that. It was an especially precious amount. And we saw that in this story, the stewards, the people given the money, they must know who their master was. He expects them to know enough to apply the spirit of what he was asking as well as the letter of his instructions, that he wanted them to do something worthwhile with those talents and those who do that are richly rewarded but the one who doesn't get severe judgment and the application of this parable must be understood within the context of the message of the chapters that are around there which are often known as the I never know how to say this right so please throw things at me but it, it's called it's spelled o-l-i-v-e-t which is because a lot of it took place on the Mount of Olives. So let's call it the Olivier uh, Discourse and Jesus talking at that point. And a lot of it was about future things. And in this particular thing, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, that he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. It is a key promise that those who believe, those who believe in Jesus at the end days, they will receive the promise of the kingdom. 
And to the people of Israel, this was both very relevant because what they wanted was the kingdom of God. But they weren't sure how that was going to be actually achieved. But the problem with this is that there are some people who then did things with the resources they were given. They believed in Jesus and they believed in God and then went forward from there. And others who just stood where they were, who stood where they were because they just didn't know who the master, well, they, they hadn't quite got what the master wanted them to do. They probably were people who we would say would fear but did not believe. They knew that God was there, but they hadn't grasped who he was for them. And this is an absolute universal application for all of us. Because from the time of the creation of man, each of us have been entrusted with different material resource and wealth. And we're responsible for using what God has given us. And if we believe and understand him and apply his word as good stewards, we can be a blessing to other people. And the value of what we do multiplies. We are accountable to God for the use of the resources that we've been given. But there are many people who say, well, I don't quite understand who God is. So if I just stay who I am, don't find out more about him, don't do anything to uh, impact others, but also to deepen my relationship with God, they're staying where they are. So we need to be people who find out more about our master and what he wants us to do. How he wants us to work in the jobs that we are. In our families. In the communities. Because when we know what our master expects. We will then be able to do what he wants. This was saying to the people of Israel. Find out about me. Find out about God and Jesus and what this revolution of Jesus coming to the earth is asking the people of Israel to do. And that's the same for us. We are called to believe in Jesus and then put his teachings into practice. Our final story is the one of the king will judge all people. And this is the one, the sheep and the goats. Now with this particular story... This is about a story of comparison. And Jesus used parables to teach spiritual truths. We've seen that in the previous two. And Jesus begins this parable by saying it concerns his return in glory to set up his kingdom. And he's got two different groups being separated and he says it's as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he'll put the sheep on one side and the goats on the left. The sheep, they're blessed. And the reason is stated, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. But they're going, huh? When was that? When did this happen? And the king will reply, I tell the truth. 
when you did that for one of the least of the brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, does anyone remember in primary school singing the song, when I needed a neighbour, were you there, were you there? When I needed a neighbour, were you there? The problem with that song, you couldn't get past, I think it was verse 2, where the whole primary school would erupt with laughter when you got to the words, I was cold, I was naked. <laughs> and everyone laughed at the word of naked because that was quite amusing for a seven-year-old brain. Apart from Kevin, he's going, no, I just sung that at the top of my voice because I was spiritual, even seven. The word naked would not stop me singing to my Lord. Well, I laughed anyway. But the problem was the goats... On Jesus' left hand, they are cursed with eternal hell fire. And the reason is given, they had an opportunity to minister, but they did nothing. And they asked but the same sort of question. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So, they're saying, but we didn't, we didn't see these people we need to minister. If we'd known Jesus, you were there, we would have ministered. And I'm calling this, this is quite a theological statement we're going to make here. So, if you've got a notebook, write it down. This is called the Arsene Wenger approach. Because, if, if you don't know what, Arsene Wenger looks like, go and see Rob Reed when he's got his glasses on. That might help you work that out. <laughs> Arsene Wenger is known for quite often saying, whatever's happened in a match, whether his players have punched somebody in the face or literally held somebody back for 20 seconds so they couldn't score a goal, he literally says, quite often, I did not see it. <laughs> he, he did. And if you don't know, he is French. He's not from Bournemouth. And he often says, I, I did not see it. And what everybody, all the match of the day pundits think, well, actually, Arsene Wenger did see it but he's just saying he didn't see it to, to be political and get out of jail here. And the thing with this is it is very obvious in this parable that what Jesus is saying is all of the people, whether they were sheep or goats, they saw people in need. So it wasn't a case they didn't see people in need. They just didn't see the significance. Because if they knew it was the master, the king, they would have done something about it. But because they just saw it was any old person in this need, they did nothing. One of the things I was challenged about, because I walked through Birmingham quite often... I felt God challenging me one Saturday morning and saying, it was about four weeks ago, anybody you see who asks you for money, give them money that day. And I was like, okay. And I got some change because we needed it for the bookstore here. So I was like, this is okay. I'm going to do this and see what happens. 
God's got a sense of humour because usually on that route, there are only a few people who ask for change. That day, it was a convention. There was everybody. Like, I don't know if he sent out a telegram or whatnot, but, and I'm thinking, oh, my life. And as I'm giving different bits of change, I'm thinking, we won't have change for the bookshop. And I've got very, like, oh, but we need change for the book. Also, God's told me to do this, but, oh, I don't, oh, and started to rationalise in my mind. And then I was going, oh, well, that person's asked for change, but they've got a mobile phone. <laughs> that person, and starting to judge different people, rather than doing what God told me to do that particular time. And if you really want to know, in the end, I had no change left at all which was quite amusing because then in order to get change for the bookshop, what I had to do at night was run around the different chip shops of uh, by where I live, buy a scallop for 30p, <laughs> put it in the bin because I was trying to lose weight, then run to the next place and get loads of change. So that's what I did. That's slightly irrelevant. But what I'm trying to say, it's very easy to go, when you're being asked in different situations, it's very easy to make a judgment, isn't it? And go, well, this person's asking for my help, but I don't need to do it because of this reason. Maybe it's what you can see when looking at them. Maybe it's because you're thinking, well, I need this for this, that and t'other. On Radio WM this week, and I'm sure you saw it in different news scenarios, they were talking about people in Wolverhampton who ask for money, uh, beggars, and the, there's one who's been found, I don't know how they found this out, but makes £500 a day. And a few people are thinking, oh, there's a career choice. <laughs> but the thing is, and then you've got all sorts of people ringing up saying different viewpoints about it's disgraceful or, well, I'm still going to give or I'm never going to give again. For me, all I'm thinking about is the idea, when I'm processing and praying about it, is we don't know who people are. It's very easy to categorise people and say, well, oh, I've heard about this person who's making such money, so I'm not going to give money ever again or I'm not going to help in any situation. But think about this. Firstly... There are people in terrible need who need our help, so let's not stop giving to them. And also these people who are asking for huge amounts of money and, or making huge amounts of money, we don't know what spiritually is going on in their heart. And by us showing kindness, we don't know what God will do with that. So let's not be people who go, we're not giving because of this, that and t'other, but in each situation, going back to our first parable, we're doing what the master wants us to do. So what I'm not saying is, everybody, all we do now is skip around Wolverhampton and Birmingham giving out money. But you need to ask, what is the master asking you to do in your particular situations in where you work? And remember that there was a list of lots of the different things. It wasn't just about money. It was about hunger and having food, thirsty and having drink, away from home and alone and invited into the house, without clothes and you gave me something to wear, sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Lots of different things that there, those people were asked to do 
There were situations where they needed to do it because they, it was right in front of their face and they missed it because they didn't recognise the importance of doing that. There's a wonderful part in the, uh, in the film Bruce Almighty where throughout the film you've got a beggar who sends lo has lots of different signs and Bruce, the person as he's walking around, keeps walking past this beggar who's got lots of signs written on cardboard. And at the very last scene of the film, that beggar changes into the character we've known throughout the story of God. And the writer of the film said this parable was the thing that really made them think about that, that God could be in all the situations where we see people in need. And that's what he's saying in this particular parable. But also... This parable isn't just one about doing good works because it's actually been used a lot of the time in arguments of people going, well, is this Jesus saying, well, you don't need to believe in him, you just need to do good things and then you're a Christian. Is that all you need to do? Do good things, then you go to heaven, you don't need to worry about believing in Jesus. Well, actually... I believe that in the parable of the sheep and the goats, we're looking at man redeemed and saved and man condemned at lost. And it's not just looking at the casual reading and suggesting that salvation is the result of good works. It's more than that. And it's not scripture contradicting itself. It's because I believe the good works mentioned in the parable are not the cause of salvation, like the key that gets you salvation, but they're the effects of salvation. Because as we read throughout the New Testament, we see that as Christians, we become like Christ. And there are lots of different versions, that, uh, lots of different verses we can look at that for that, such as Romans 8, 29, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Colossians 2, 6 to 7. But, to focus on this, let's look at Galatians 5.22. And that tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Now that means love and joy, not that we turn into an antique stealer from the 80s. But Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Good works in a Christian's life are a direct overflow of these things. And they're acceptable to God because of the relationship that exists between servant and master, the saved and the saviour, and the sheep and their shepherd. So the core message of the parable of the sheep and the goats to me is that God's people will show love to others. And good works will result from a relationship to the shepherd. Followers of Christ will treat others with kindness, serving them as if they were serving Christ himself. Obviously, I'm not saying that people who aren't Christians don't do acts of kindness and charity. I'm not saying that. I'm sure we can think of many, many situations where that is we know people who are incredibly charitable who aren't Christians. However, are 
service comes from our desire to honour and worship God. And when we are honouring and worshipping God, one of the ways we do that is by treating those people around us with the kindness that our master expects. So ultimately, all three responses to these parables don't depend on the way we look at other people or we look at the challenge that we're given, such as, oh, do we have to make money using the talents we've got? And it doesn't ultimately how we see, whether we see people in need or where we don't see people in need. It actually all comes from where we see God. And when we see our master and what we see, what he asks us to do, all three of those challenges will become perfectly clear to us. And as you read the Bible and you discover more of the challenges that Jesus asks us to do, it becomes incredibly or a lot easier for us to see the servanthood, what Jesus expects of us. So as the band comes up, we're just going to pray, but we're going to sing the song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And that's what we're asking today, that Jesus takes our life. And as we do that, we're going to take our offering as well, another way of doing what the Master has asked us to do. But take our life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So we're not going to see about what other people are doing or worry about tasks. We're going to look at you, Lord, and ask you to take us where you want us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your salvation. The fact that you forgive each one of us for the things that we do wrong and the things we don't do, things we have, have missed. Help us know your heart, Lord, and how you want us to work and you want us to walk and how you want us to share the salvation that you've got for each one of us with the people around us. We pray that you'll guide us so at the end when we meet you face to face, you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that as people read these passages more this week, that they would inspire them to live a life driven by you, Lord. Amen.